0: Um, suppose that you got dropped someplace super uh, uncomfortable uh, by yourself. Like you went to sleep tonight in your bed and you woke up um, tomorrow in a country like Iran or like North Korea or something like that, where you knew that the the, the culture at large is hostile to your personal survival, right? And, uh, and so the question is, would you feel alone in that moment? And the answer is, yeah, yeah absolutely you would. And it's not so much that Culturally, like I don't know if uh, I don't know if I'm gonna be okay with the food here, right? It's gonna be the fact that like the very core of um, what you, what you are is um, is being held in in a way that's uh, contemptible and, and contentious, and so um, I want to sort of um, start with an Old Testament story that I know that you are familiar with. And if you're fast, um, you can flip to Daniel chapter 3. And um, I'll just remind you of what's happening in, uh, in Daniel. Um, the nation of Israel has been taken into captivity because of their disobedience. So it's like a known quantity. But they're, they're taken into uh, a hostile territory. They're in Babylon, and, um, and they take all of the young men from Israel, and they bring him into Babylon, into captivity there, uh, so that they can make sure that their culture is perpetuated and not the uh, culture of Israel. And so um, amongst this, we find one guy whose namesake is the book, Daniel. But uh, we also are familiar maybe with the story of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And and uh, what has happened, essentially, is that the king has decided to issue a decree of um, that there's a statue built, and uh, when, the, when the, the, the trumpet sounds, when the horns sound, everybody needed to prostrate before the statue and, and pay homage to the king, the, the, the emperor there, and that's uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so we find that um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in not just a hostile culture, but now they're asked to do something that would be uh, against the, the very core of their belief, well, that would be to honor uh, a king that is not God, and so we find them in an uncomfortable position, and um, they've decided amongst themselves to not honor this um, this request from the king. And so, in Daniel chapter uh, three, sort of towards the end, we find that after they've defied the decree, that this um, this has incited the fury of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he comes against them, and he's frustrated. And they say, "King, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In fact, um, we, we will trust in our God to deliver us." And he says, "But even if not, we will not dishonor our God." by honoring you. And so that incites his anger all the more. And so he orders that this fiery furnace be inflamed even seven times harder than it normally would have been. And their plan is obviously to cast them into this fire. And if you're familiar with the story, what happens is they, the, the guys, the soldiers that are actually there to take these three guys and throw them in, they get consumed by the fire and they throw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three dudes that decide to partner together not to give up the, the core of um, who they are, and their identity. And because of this fellowship, and I think this friendship, this pact they have, they sort of have the courage to do that. But more than that, the overriding principle even in that is that we trust God. And once they cast these men in the fire, they're looking in there, and what it is, lo and behold, they see not three, but four people. And there's one who's, they say, shining like one that's the, the, the son of uh, sons of gods. Or so he, see, he sees an angel in there amongst Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, they come out, and lo and behold, they're not harmed at all by the fire. And um, the response to this is um, important because it, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes what's happening, and he honors their honoring of God. So, by the fact that these guys decide to stick together, they have sort of the, the communion of fellowship and friendship that can encourage them to, hey, we got to stay the course, even if it costs us our life. We're, we're going to hold fast to this confession that, that Jesus or not Jesus, but God is Lord, Yahweh is our God, and we're not going to honor Nebuchadnezzar. As uh, gives way to the fact that God is honored and seen for what he is, that he is the protector of his people. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes and pronounces this over all the people. So we come to an important promise of God throughout all of scripture, which is this, I'm with you. That's the character of our God. I'm a God who is not distant and removed from you. I'm a God who is with you and among you. But God doesn't just say, hey, it's good enough that I'm with you in spirit. Like, it's, it's intangible, and that is an important aspect to it. But more than that, he gives us companionship and fellowship and people, and God cares about companionship and fellowship and people. You see that really at the front end of creation. First book of the Bible, just after God creates everything, everything is good except for one thing. He puts man in the garden. He gives him a task, and he says it's not good for a man to be alone. And he doesn't just give him any kind of companion. He gives him a companion that's fitting to the task. So God has a place for man, he has a a task, a work for man to be about, and he has a, a, a means for them to accomplish that, that we would do this together, like in partnership. So it's not just the fact that he gives us friendships, but he gives us all kinds of relationships that God constantly addresses throughout scriptures because relationships are important to God as a means of, a necessary, essential means of accomplishing what God has to do. So that's why it says God cares specifically for the widow and the orphan, Think about the absence of those kinds of relationships. Well, a widow is absent of that marriage relationship. And so God cares and he sees them in their plight and how they have to make it through life. And he sees the orphan that missing that, that father figure, that family uh, parenting relationship. And he, and he looks upon their plight. He's, he's considerate of the stranger and the alien, somebody that lacks uh, a, a territory, a, a people to belong to. So if you think about how God cares for relationships, it's an important recognition for us that we see that we're not called to just be like mercenaries through the world. God has called us to a task, but he's then equipped us with people to help us stay fast or stand fast in in times of difficulty and especially in times where where we find ourselves in a hostile situation. See, because if you woke up tomorrow in North Korea, and you would, you would feel very alone, not just because culturally you'd be out of place, but because you would know that some, something that's, like, hostile to your faith, you, you would need some fellowship to help you stand fast. And perhaps if you had a gun pointed at your face and you were, um, you know, given this choice to either honor God or, or, um, or bow the knee to some other ultimate authority, it would be more tempting to just acquiesce if, unless you had other people around you to help you do that, Right? And so the the key to this whole understanding is that God doesn't just call us to any kind of friendship, or any kind of relationship, or any kind of companionship, or any kind of spouse. We can find different, like, qualifications to invest in relationships, but at the end of the day, the kind that matter are the kind that are, are collecting God's people together to stand as God's people. So that is the situation we see Paul in this morning in Acts chapter 18. So before we get to the text, let me pray for our time in the Word, and then we'll get to it. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, just this gathering that we get to have as your people, that you have knit together from every tribe, nation, and tongue, uh, a people for yourself who will glorify and honor you in word and deed, and that you have said that just by what we're about to do, um, you will call new people to yourself by the power of your word. So we ask that you would um, honor that, that you would bring new people, that you would um, woo them to you, but also that you would use this word to um, help us in our time of need and our fearfulness about um, life and culture, and sometimes when we feel lacking relationships, that you would speak that encouragement to us this morning um, in your truth. So, Father, give us um, what we don't have, which is the the spiritual eyes and the spiritual ears and a heart that is flesh to receive your truth this morning. And this would all be done for your glory and in your name, everyone said, Amen. All right. So Acts chapter 18. And um, I'm going to like, read uh, all together, but I do want to like, stop and I'll make some commentary, and that'll become more apparent of why I'm doing it that way in between. Uh, so I want to fill in the gaps here. Obviously, um, Paul's been in Athens, and he's been sort of a member at the, 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 the philosophical center of the world at that point. And he's been delivering an address not to people that related um, through God's word to um, truth but through other means. And so they were kind of looking everywhere else except for um, the, the Word of God, for for what is true about the world and about life. And so Paul uh, has given his uh, his word, and there's a, a sort of a, a meager, if you will, response to that, and he's moved on. And so we find him this morning moving to Corinth, who uh, we know in our Bible as uh, the, the recipients of the letters of 1st Second, and there's actually a third letter that we don't have. So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Corinthians refers to these people. So this is where he's at. So after this, after this, that's after Athens, right? After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Let's stop for just a second. Um, what you need to know is that if Athens is like the, uh, the philosophical intellectual center, um, uh, Corinth at this moment is uh, not only larger by population. So, uh, estimates are somewhere around like 500,000 people, which is massive in terms of the, the day and age. Um, but the, the where, where Corinth is, is um, situated is that it's a coastal city with like uh, an isthmus there. And so it was uh, transportation of port to port. And so it was full of sailors. And you've heard of cursing like a sailor and all the other things that sailors do. That is manifestation times 10 here in Corinth. Um, Even the vernacular of the day betrays what Corinth was, which is if you were a prostitute, you were called a Corinthian girl. If you were Corinthianized, you were somebody that was depraved, right? And so if you think about what's happening in the city and where Paul's now wound up, it's a strategic center as a, as a port of distribution, but it's it's depraved. It is it is Las Vegas times a thousand. It was a center of the worship of Aphrodite, which is the goddess of love. And so people would go to temples with prostitutes in them and worship. Uh, Aphrodite in that way. And so this is where Paul finds himself. So he moves to sort of the center of intellect, to the center of, of pleasure, right, and fulfillment and desire. And so that's where he finds himself. And underline or, or just note in your mind for just a minute, he meets somebody there. He meets two people there. Uh, one, um, this, this husband and wife team, who become important later on in the ministry of, uh, of the gospel throughout uh, this region, but they're forced to leave their home. At the particular time that Paul finds them in this city that he had never planned to be in, okay, and if you notice, Paul's all alone in this moment. He had fled Macedonia and Philippi, and he had left his partnership behind, and he, that's where he wound up in Athens. And now he's moved on from there, and he's still just like a solo effort. But he finds himself uh, by himself. But here he meets these two Jews who happen to be dispersed from their their land, and who happen to be present at Pentecost. I'll tell you why I think that in just a moment. But see that God has orchestrated the timing of all this, importantly, for Paul's benefit. So he goes, he finds these two Jews who had been expelled from their home, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and he worked, um, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul happens to be a tent maker. Maybe this is more like a leather worker, but it it doesn't matter. He has a, a job, an occupation, that they share. And so because of that, he finds a place to stay in a place where he didn't have anything in, uh, in a hostile territory, if you want to think about it that way. And so he went and he did what he always does, which is to reason in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks, um, and he's trying to persuade them that what? Jesus is the Christ. This is Paul's MO and this is what he's doing. But then Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, and Paul was occupied with the word. So what's happening? he's reasoning in the synagogue he's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Christ, but then the the backup arrives, and what we find out is that they brought with them a gift from uh, Philippi, a financial gift of resources and this allows Paul to do something that he wasn't already doing, which is to totally devote himself to preaching the word, which is that word occupied with the word means he was consumed with it was the totality of what he invested his life in and What happens right there in that moment is he pens the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and also probably Romans. So if you think about what's happening here, Paul has a moment because relief is brought, and he refers to that later in Philippians. Um, He's able to focus totally on the word. And um, so so backup arrives, and then verse 6, it says, And and when... um, when they opposed him, that they as the Jews and the Greeks, when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Um, Paul has reached a point of frustration. This is an absolute, uh, I'm done with you. Uh, I'm washing my hands of you. I've done all that I can do. I don't know how to do anything else. So I want to testify before you that your, your resistance to this is, is on your own heads. And from now on, I will only go to the Gentiles, which feels like... Um, Maybe giving up, but it's actually what he was always meant to do, right? If you've, if you've forgotten, Paul's called to be a witness, an apostle to the Gentiles. This was the mission he was given when he was converted. So verse 7 says, And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. So this, this one is uh, one who honors God, but who's not a, uh, a Christian just yet. And his house happens to be next door to the synagogue. Imagine the providence of this. These people he's going to every Sabbath, reasoning with all that he has to the point of frustration. He's given up and he happens to find this other man and he goes and he begins a witness to him and he just happens to live next door to the synagogue, right? Just a little bit of happenstance there. And he is um, also a worshiper of God. And um, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So both of these guys uh, end up being converts And together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So finally he begins to get some traction. Now verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And I have many in this city who are my people. And so he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. You notice that's in red. You don't get very many red letters in the book of Acts. Jesus has ascended already, and uh, so we, we don't get him speaking very often, but this is, this is Christ the Lord speaking. And this verse 9 serves as, it's not just the high point of this passage, it is the, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the synopsis, if you will, or at least we're going to, to use it to understand sort of the front end and the, 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 the back end of it. So, so Christ appears one night in a vision to Paul and he has some specific words of encouragement for him. So what we're meant to understand is that um, Jesus wasn't just like randomly showing up for no purpose at all. He's speaking to a particular problem that Paul is facing in the moment. And this, there's five statements here that actually end up being sort of a chiasm, which is that thing where it's, it's parallel statements which end up in one important statement in the middle. And so the, that's going to serve as the framework this morning for our time. He says, don't be afraid, right? Do not be afraid. No one will attack you. There's, there's two kind of negative statements there. Don't be afraid. No one will attack you. And then why? Because I'm with you. I'm with you. So you don't have to fear. And then he says, no one will attack you to harm you because I have many who are mine in this city. So we're going to use those, those statements to walk through the morning to understand these patches. So the first one, obviously, is a negative statement. Don't be afraid. And again, Jesus is not addressing a problem that Paul doesn't have. So we're supposed to infer in this moment that Paul is afraid. What is the problem? Why is Paul afraid? What's wrong with what's happening? And I think we tend to have an idea of our mind, in our minds about Paul. Um, everything that he touches turns to gold, right? And he just, he just walks on water. And, and nothing ever happens um, that, that would, would cause him to be fearful or, or discouraged in any way. But that's not true. We see him account, encounter, uh, previous to this, much more like apparent um, times of discouragement. I mean, he's, he's jailed, he's in prison, he's beaten, he's left, I mean, he's literally killed one time and then rises again and then goes back in the city. I mean, you would think if you were looking at sort of the survey so far of the things that Paul has walked through, that why, why is this moment seem to be the one that he needs, he needs encouragement? He's, he hits the wall at this moment because he's encountered a different kind of discouragement. And, and it's specifically attached to the kind of encouragement that Jesus is going to give him. But if, if you want to um, hear Paul say this in his own words, when he's writing later later to the Corinthians about this time where he arrives, he says this: When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you what in weakness and in fear. Much trembling that doesn't seem to fit the demeanor that we typically think of Paul. I mean, he he goes, he he faces authorities, he's he's he stayed in prison when he didn't need to. I mean, he doesn't strike you as the kind of guy that is his weakness or or trembling doesn't seem to fit the the narrative of what we think about him. Paul's a learned man, he's not short of knowledge on the word of God, but he's expended all that with the people that it mattered to. Let me say that again Paul came to the end of what Paul could do because. As he'd been going to the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue, he'd expended sort of all of the effort he could, and it wasn't getting him anything that it had typically got him before. You see, what, what, this is a different kind of encouragement. Even though in the face of beatings and, and problems and, and, and just all kinds of um, peril, Paul always saw fruit from sharing the word of God. What's happened as he arrives in the city, he is not seeing any fruit. In fact, it says that they're reviling him and blaspheming him. That's that's the words there. They're they're not quite as strong um, in the verse, but those are the two words that they, they resist him. That's reviling him, and they blaspheme what he has to say. So think about now what Paul. Why is Paul in weakness and fear? And well, he's he's feeling discouraged about the way that he's um, seen things in the past, and so um, we're. we're um, we're meant to see, though, that Paul's not dissuaded from the task. He doesn't give up the task, but he, he comes to a realization that perhaps he's been going about the task the wrong way and in the wrong means. He's been pouring himself out, and he's encountered now this brick wall. And Jesus' words specifically are directed at his encouragement to keep speaking. He says, don't, don't be silent, keep on speaking. That's, that's what Jesus' specific words are to him. So we're meant to see that as, as where, where is Paul discouraged at? Is it, is, it about, is it his fear of being beaten again? Yes, but it's attached to the temptation to be silent, to think that I need to do something different than what I've I've been doing, and so um, Jesus is sort of redirecting his uh, his attention to uh, the fruit. See the the beatings without the the, the benefits like are, are something of a discouragement, and, and fear is coming because there's lack of, of fruit in what he's been sharing. So do not keep silent, um, do not be silent, but keep speaking. Paul was specifically discouraged about his concerted, his concerted efforts to convince the Jews and the Greeks not being successful. This is a this is totally new paradigm for Paul. And so it's, it's not Paul's words that are failing. It's not that he's, he hasn't changed the message. He's saying the same things he's probably said in every town, but now it's being met with a new kind of resistance. And so when Paul finally does reach somebody, if you notice, it's a redirection of where he'd been expending his efforts. He'd been expending them in the synagogue. And then backup arrives, which allows him to pour himself into the word and sort of like bolster up the arguments. And if you read, if you read the, the letters to Thessalonians and uh, the book of Romans, in light of that moment, you can see how Paul is, is expending his efforts to make these real apologetic arguments about Jesus. And um, he's, he's meant, though, to, to redirect his attention on those who would not have the same kind of basis that he had been assuming or taking for granted in the past. He's, 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 he's switching to a new people. When Paul finally reaches someone, it's not because he changed the message, it's because he changed the target. Okay? And, and that's, Jesus needed Paul to stop what he was doing. He had, to, he had to run through the brick wall enough times to finally say, okay, fine, I give up. And that's when he says, I wash my hands of, of this. I'm shaking my garments out. Your blood be on your heads. I'm going to turn to a new group of people. I'm going to only go to the Gentiles. Forget you guys. And when he does that, finally, finally, God actually has his attention, and he, and he sets his, his, his eyes on the task that he was meant to be doing, and he does it right next door to the people that he at first was consumed with. See, Paul, his fellow countryman, his first idea of his, um, his duty or his sense of, of wanting people to belong would have been invested in the people that he belongs to, but that wasn't who he was called to. So he, he ends up converting this, this god fear Greek who happens to live right next door, and then he converts the the ruler of the synagogue. If you want to think about it, he was the um, the owner, or, or um, not just of the property, but he was like the manager of the synagogue. And so he had he he converted the the, the most important person over that. And so that comes later on as as an important aspect of the uh, of the fallout from this. It's, it gets spicy because of that. So all of this is um, part of that same. Uh, opening on the the letter of Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming uh, to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. There was a way that he could have gone about things to try to gather the attention of the the city, and he could have tried a a different method, but he was focused on um, trying to reach the Jews and the Greeks, and so he he, he needs to adjust what he's saying and how he's saying it um, to a different group of people because they will be uh, receptive to his presentation. And so the assertion is, why, Paul? Why should you do this? Why? Because I, I'm with you. Why can you trust me? Because I'm with you. I said, this is a, a central aspect of, of who we trust God to be. In fact, it's, it's, it's I am. In, in the Greek, it's Jesus saying the I am, which is the name, Yahweh. I am the God who is, the God who was, the God who will be, and I am the God who is with you. When Moses says, who do I say that people have sent? This is the response. When God says, tell them Yahweh, that's the, the, the I am phrase, and the implication there is, it's not just a, a title that you call him, but is the character of God Himself. It's the same words that when Jesus promises that He will, He won't leave the disciples alone. In John 14, He says, "I, I will send another. I'll send the Helper. I'll send the Spirit, and He will be with you." And so we have sort of this in, intangible promise, but we see the promise of God being with us in in this particular passage, it just not just for Paul, but for us too. In I think three ways. So there's the presence of God, which is like in in the Holy Spirit, that he will be with us, and not just in the Holy Spirit, but among the people, that he has has provision or he has providence for his people, and he will provide for us what we need, and then finally that he has a people who belong to him, and that we ought to concern ourselves with, and so this is the the statement and the promise will, will be seen in three ways, both in hindsight and then looking forward right? When Jesus shows up and says, don't be afraid because I'm with you. He's not saying from now on, I'll be with you. In fact, if you think about the moments where, where Paul, you would think he would have been more discouraged. He, he's perhaps asking himself at this point, were you not with me before? And of course he was. But perhaps once, once you hear that promise again, you'll be able to see it better in the front half. When um, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, who, who arranged the timing of that? It looks like the, the fact that they've been expelled from their land is something that's out of everyone's hands except for God's. And it seems to be a negative thing, but it actually ends up being a positive thing. These two people, where Paul didn't have a place to stay, now he's got a place to stay. And he, he later on tells us that Priscilla and Aquila are people who risk their lives for Paul. That We don't know explicitly what that's referring to, but these, this is the kind of com- communion that we're meant to rely on. And so, um, and, then, and then when... Um, when the rest of the, the backup arrives, they're, they're bearing gifts, financial gifts, so that Paul could do what he needed to do. He could invest himself in the Word to write uh, more of Scripture for us. And so the, the provision was already there, and we see it going forward. And so this all uh, ties together. So he says, um, at the, at, be, beyond that I, my speech was not in wisdom or, or power, I was weak and I was fearful, verse 4 says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and in power. That's that's God's, God's spirit empowering to, to speak and to, to fulfill the tasks that we're called to do. Um. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, if I had come and you had convinced on my own words, then, then it wouldn't really be faith in the power of the gospel, and I wouldn't have trusted it, and you wouldn't have been trusting in God's power. You wouldn't have been trusting in my words. And so he's pointing to the, the fact that it's the, the Spirit's power that brings people. So he gives him some promises. No one will attack you to harm you. That's, um, if, that feels late for me, if you're Paul. Like There's been other times where he's been attacked and harmed. He's come into much peril, and he, he's experienced a lot. But um, I, I think we're meant to see that this encouragement is attached for a specific period of time. Because uh, Paul would have been, think about this, looking at the hostility of the, the land that he's in. He, he's, he's looking at the fact that he's only going to go to Gentiles, this, this group of people, and he's got to carry a message. If you think about how, how Jonah was... Um, was, didn't want to bring the message to the Ninevites, right? We're told that. And sort of, we, we kind of look back at that and we're like, Ugh, Jonah's a nasty guy because he didn't like those dirty Ninevites. And like, maybe that's true. But if you think about it, they were also like people that would probably kill him for saying, hey, you guys need to repent. Now now think about that same aspect of, of what Paul's called to. He's, he's call, he's, he has to go to this culture that's um, steeped in depravity and tell them uh, about a God who's calling them to repentance, there's, there's a fearful aspect that they're going to they're gonna kill me, right? This is a, a specific needed promise for this period of time that he would be able to share the truth and that, and that Jesus would be with him and preserve him, not just through the power of the Spirit, yes, through that, but also through the people that he's with, which is the second aspect of that promise. Why? Because there are many of my people who are in this city. So it's not just my protection and, and my presence and my power, but they're also my people. And the people are the, the people that are sort of a perpetuating means of God's providence for us in, in this sense. It is, it's not that um, there's, a, there's a carrot that's dangled out there in the way that um, God's asked you to go perform some task, and he'll meet you on the other side of it, okay? Although that's how we look at things. God, God's asked us to um, go into a hostile world, or he's, he's asked me to go into my workplace, or he's asked me, whatever it is. And you look at sort of the fruit of that, and he says, if you do this, then then um, I'll be with you, and I'll meet you on the other side, and we'll get to, the, um, we'll get to the, the, the fruit together. And in fact, he's saying, no, I'm with you through the middle of that. And also on the other end of it is something that will also be a blessing to you. In fact, those people that are saved and come because of your witness, will then become new people who are saved and also do the same thing. And so they end up perpetuating the same thing. And so it's it's fruitfulness that begets fruitfulness. And that's what God is holding out. There are many of my people who are not yet saved, Paul, who will respond. So there's a promise there. There's a promise of fruit, but it's a promise that also means something important for Paul. Paul will be given more people who we can trust in that will give him further provision, who can provide not just housing, but also like... um, tangible benefits. Um, later on, when, when Paul talks about this time, he says the only two people that he baptized in, in uh, Corinth is the two guys that he converted, Crispus and uh, Justice, okay? And, and so these two guys are the only ones, and so what we're meant to infer from that is, is that we get to see that these two guys that he does convert end up building a church. They're the ones that, that are in, uh, perpetuating this fruitfulness. And so I want to say here out of this that God's work accomplishing anything is not about us soldiering on, on our own merits and our own benefit because um, we're, we're tough enough. But I, I think we, we do think about it like that. We say, well, God's with me, and I know that I- even in a moment I, I feel alone that I have the Holy Spirit. And that's true. But God hasn't just left you alone with the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we, we think that, but that's not true. He's, he's He's intentionally surrounded us and given us the providence and, and the potential benefit of new people who will help us walk through things so that we can be sort of this Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego band of brothers, brothers and sisters, right? That we can, we can um, come together and, and walk through the world. So it's God's working, though, that accomplishes all of this. We're told that it's, it's God's spirit in us that both causes us to desire and work for his, for his pleasure. It's, it's, it's that... Um, God has created us in Christ by his workmanship to walk in the works that he's he's given us and that he's providing the means to do that. So I have have a a pivot to make in this sense right now. So what's happening is that um, God has provided Paul with all of these things. And in a moment where we, we look at a text and we would read it and we just go, yeah, he's doing the same thing that he's always done. But then when you kind of read behind that and you see that Paul... Paul has to receive this word from Jesus because he's he's missed some important things. Paul missed some important things. That means you probably have missed some important things too, right? And and I think the thing that I I want to draw your attention to um, is you've missed probably the provision of God for, for friendship and for companionship in the world. And you probably, like all of us, have invested relationships either previous to coming to know Christ and, and so the question I have is not PC. Like, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a good, nice question that you're going to enjoy, but it's the one that you need to answer, okay? And you don't have to answer it out loud, obviously. But it's something that you need to ask in your heart. If I eliminate family from, from this and your spouse, and I said, who, who do you look to for the kind of provision of companionship in a moment where um, it seems hope is lost, right? When you're just really discouraged and everything looks bleak, and 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 you need something besides the self reassurance of well I know that God's with me, and and that's an important thing. God has not only left you with that though, and I need you to hear that again. Um. There's this there's um, a familiar passage to us where um, the disciples are traveling with Jesus, and we find this rich this rich young ruler shows up right. And he has this dialogue with Jesus about eternal life, about what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? We know that exchange, that he says he kept all the commandments and so on and so forth. And Jesus' response is that you need to go sell all you have and then follow me. And it says that that, um, he goes away sad. And then we we talk a lot about that, and that's got a ton of application, but it's the conversation that happens just after that that I think um, might be important for you this morning, okay? So just after that, um, they're like, wait a second, if it's impossible for this rich man to get into to, to salvation, to see eternal life, um, who has any hope? And Jesus is like, that's a great question. You don't have any hope. It's impossible. Because with man, it's, imp- it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And, and they're looking at what Jesus said to this man, that he needed to sell everything and follow him. And then um, Peter pipes up because um, Peter needed to pipe up. And he said, well, look at us. We did leave everything. We, we left everything. And here we are following you. What do we get? And Jesus' assurance to them is not, hey guys, like I know you gave up everything, but I'll be with you in spirit. Okay, that, That's not his reassurance, though he gives that assurance later on. He says, I won't leave you alone, I will give you the spirit. So you do get the spirit, you do have the internal presence of God. But he says, look, there's, there's, you can't leave home, you can't leave family, and you cannot leave friends that I will not replace. Now, in this age, and in the age to come. Paul, um, um, Jesus makes this this, this point to, to point out that he has given us something that is meant to replace something that we um, can and do lose by, fo- by following Jesus. Okay? So the question of who do you look to outside of the people of God for um, true companionship and true friendship, true, um, true friendship, and if your answer is, well, I've got friends that... Um, We we don't have this main thing as the same world. We don't share the idea that that Jesus is Lord and that um, God is the means of salvation. We don't share that, but but we get along well. Like, we have a shared affinity, and I get along good with them. And they get along, and we're fine. We're like fast friends, and we share a lot of things. But if that main thing is the uniting thing for you, and you don't have anybody outside of uh, or inside the family of God that you think of that way, that's a problem. Because Jesus says, look, what I've come to do, it will, it will divide families. And, and um, brother against brother, and, and father against son, and husband against wife. Why? Because that, that's a dividing value. That's, that's the kind of thing that you can't say, okay, agree to disagree. That doesn't mean that you cannot have friends outside of the church, but it says your best friends have to be sharing that same value. That's why he says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Has having to do with marriage what what fellowship can there be between light and darkness if if you're looking for somebody who doesn't share the main gospel value to be your encouragement forward in gospel life you've made a miscalculation and so I'm trying to encourage you um this morning that you need um, true companionship you need spirit filled kinds of companions to um Be gospel in you, to hold gospel um, promise for you, and to encourage you forward in the gospel. Look at sort of, you want to see the the fallout of this or the response. So there's been a promise made, and Paul sort of overlooked the fact that he needs something besides himself. I mean, he's got resources, he can speak, and that's fine. He can reason really well in the synagogue, and perhaps he's like a little bit apprehensive to um, share the same thing amongst people who would be hostile to this truth. But Jesus says, don't be silent. If you speak my words, people will respond. I have many people who will, who will respond, and they do respond, and they begin to respond once he shifts his eyes and he trusts in this promise. And so he does that. Now, Jesus made a specific promise that um, nobody would attack him to hurt him. But look, it says, when Gallio was proconsul of uh, Achia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now think about this. He's got, he's got from the lips of Jesus a promise that no one will attack him and I think in this moment you, you would be like what happened to that promise? They're saying this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Think about they're they're again, utilizing culture and, and, and trying to um, coalesce with the government to impose a thought that you know, the, the very thing that you are saying is life is illegal. It's, it's, it can't be done. Well, this argument is brought before Galileo. It says, "But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, "So he's going to offer a defense about perhaps um, uh, why he wouldn't, shouldn't be convicted of such a matter." But Galileo responds, "If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since this is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of these things." Now, I, um, here's an important aspect of what we think of when we think, I need to make friends in the world so that I am not always experienced hostilities. And Paul didn't do anything to befriend this proconsul. If, if there's a guy that's going to defend Paul, it, it, you would think it's going to have to come from somewhere in the community, somebody that he's converted, somebody that also agrees with Paul, maybe somebody like um, Barnabas who could, who could step in or or um, uh, or Timothy or somebody, but it's this, this uh, governor who steps out and says, look, I'm not going to be a judge of this because this has to do with things about your law. This is an important thing that um, is now going to set a a legal precedent, if you you will, for Paul, that he can always argue that he's not presenting a new God. He's not presenting a new religion. This has to do with uh, an extension of of, um, the the religion of uh, the Jews, which has to do with God. And he's going to keep using this argument later on as he encounters more and more trials. So just stick that in your back pocket. And then verse 16 says, and he, that's the governor, drove them from the tribunal. That's the judgment seat that they are before. And they all seized Sosthenes, okay? Well, who's Sosthenes? Well, he's the new guy. He's the new ruler of the synagogue, remember? Because Crispus was converted. Crispus is converted. He's the ruler of the synagogue. And so now they got to replace him. Well, they all seize now Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. The thing that Paul would have been afraid of is received now by the people who are resisting the word of God. This is the, the, the fruition of this promise. They will not attack you to harm you, and it ends up falling on the head of Sosthenes. But Galileo Gal- paid no attention to any of this. Okay? So he's indifferent to the fact that they've just beat the tar out of this guy. And they're upset because they wanted Paul out of there because he's having um, he's having influence. He's having an effect. So Proverbs says this, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let me um, just say that in a different way. You can have a lot of friends, but you need a kind of friend that sticks closer than a brother. Like a, a, a brother is stuck with you, a friend sticks with you, okay? Like you didn't get to choose your family, but somebody that chooses to be with you because of some uniting value beyond the fact that they uh, can tolerate you, or because you like the same thing, is, is way more important than the fact that you have a lot of friends. Because you have a lot of friends that will abandon you at the point where the main thing becomes the, the point of contention, which is exactly what happens in this moment. The, the, the people that Paul had concerned himself with it when he first arrives were his, his countrymen, his people, right? The people that he could be natural friends with, fast friends with, and in this moment where the worldview collapses and that becomes the point of contention, they're no friend of Paul, right? Which is going to be the same thing that happens to you when, when it becomes a problem that the gospel is the main thing. And that becomes the point of contention. At that point, you will be abandoned and alone. Because your friends are only so far as, as that's not um, made, the central, made the central aspect of it. So if you have lots of friends outside the church that you're closer to, that may be something you need to reconsider, I know that 's not like not something you totally want, but you look around and you 're like well i don 't know if I can be friends in the same way look the the, the value is this it 's not that you need to abandon friendships with those those people it's that you need to see them as um, as the promise hopefully of bringing the gospel to bear on those people that they potentially are people that need to hear the gospel and that you can be hopefully hoping that um, God will open their heart to that truth. And so now, um, just like Paul was there in the city and he did tent making because it provided a way for him to, to be about the true mission. Everybody, everybody shares the same mission, but you have different work that might facilitate that. So whatever it is that you do that allows you to live and make means or whatever, that's not your, your calling. That's not, you, you get to have new mission fields because of that, but that's just a means of facilitating the true mission, which is the gospel, which Paul never turns away from. So if you say, well, I have these friends, and we don't share this main thing in common, then it should be your number one goal to change that. If you care for them in a way that really matters, then that means they're, they're, the, they're the new mission field for you. We're not called to just make any kind of friend, and we're not called to just marry anybody that we're attracted to. There's, there's specific kinds of provisions that we're warned of in Scripture because we need to have um, awareness that we're not just meant to tie ourselves together with, with anybody because we, we, we share a, a benefit from the kinds of companionship that God provides. So I just sort of have some bullet points I'm going to summarize and end with this morning, specifically about companionship and how God's um, provided that for us. God gives us the right people for the right reasons, at the right time, for the right time. Paul could not have orchestrated or coordinated any finding uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And they end up being uh, people that can not just provide a house or a roof for Paul, but they are people that also uh, fed, uh, share the gospel value. And they, they end up, um, it, in the next bit, in the next uh, part of the chapter, they help correct a teach, uh, teacher, Apollos, who becomes uh, a, a pastor in the church. And so um, he provides the right people for the right reasons, at the right time, for the right time. There's, there's a need in Corinth for this kind of presence, for Paul to have somebody to rely on who will risk themselves for Paul's benefit. And so you need to hear that. You're, you might be looking in the wrong places for the right people. But you, you might be looking in the right places for the right people, but at the right, wrong time, right? Or you might be looking at all those things, but God has a different set of people, but they are the right people for the time that he sees that is needed. And so we kind of look around and go, well, why do I need this person? Well, it may not be that that you need that person, but maybe that person needs you, which leads to like a a different aspect of this, which is you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. In spite of whatever it is that Paul's overlooked, um, we are called, if, if perfection was the goal so that you would then be able to help other people along, we would never get anywhere, right? It's imperfect people coming together to encourage one another forward. And so it's not that you have to be attaining a certain level to be able to help somebody else move forward in the gospel. So maybe somebody else needs the encouragement of the exact thing that you are struggling with in that moment or something that you've been through. So instead of looking for the person that will feed you, maybe you need to look for the person that you can help encourage. Like, I could give real specific, tangible examples, but I think it's more important that you don't hear those and then think, well, those are the only ones, right? Right? God has um, specific points of Scripture where he reminds us that we're a family and that the older should serve the younger and that the the mature should help along the immature and that we should think of each other in that way. Specifically in Hebrews um, 10.24, which reminds us that we should um, not just neglect, not not neglect, that's a double negative, I'm sorry, that's weird to say that, but we, we should not neglect gathering together. But before that, it says, consider how to spur one another to love and good works. Consider what it is that you bring that you might be able to help other people along in. Instead of saying, well, I haven't got to this level of perfection, so I can't be used. That's a, that's a silly way to think about anything. It's, it's that you are here for a specific reason. You are one of God's people, and so you have something to offer. So don't neglect meeting together, as some have made the habit. So get together, encourage one another, spur each other on. Like, hey, you can do it. I need to encourage you in this way all the more as you see the day approaching, which is the day of judgment, which is the the day that we're supposed to be seen and and found being about the work of God. So you're just encouraging people to stay the course. You need an Abednego or a Shadrach or whatever. Like Daniel's not there in that moment who happens to be the guy that uh, he gets promoted, right? And so these three guys band together. It's not because they were, you know, in and of themselves the only ones who could done it. But together, they do it, and they hold fast, and they have this testimony that God is always with us. So don't make restrictions and qualifications on the kinds of people that you can make friends with. If you don't like them now, you're going to be miserable in eternity. That was a joke. I don't think you'll be miserable in eternity. Maybe you won't be there if you have that attitude, though. It's a joke, okay? Don't make restrictions and qualifications on who your family is. God has called these people here and he's gathered us, if you forget what Paul had already said, that God has placed us providentially in the time and in the place that we live for his purposes. Finally, there's that second aspect that Hebrews encourages not to neglect meeting together. And people say, well, I I am a mess. I'm a hot mess. I won't, I, I'll fix my life. And then I'll go and gather with the people that seem to have their lives together. And that's, it's, the best example I can give is that's like saying I'll get healthy and then go to the hospital. You, the, I have had many conversations with people who's like, they, they have all these reasons and excuses why they don't gather with the people of God. And the, the problem with that is gathering with the people of God is the means that encourages you to continue gathering with the people of God. And the people of God are the ones that encourage you to move forward in that walk. So the very thing you're waiting to happen won't happen until you begin to gather with the people that you're meant to gather with. And those are the people that are going to encourage you forward in the way that you need to be encouraged forward. There, the gospel push forward. Continue on. Our goals may not be the goals that God has or the timing that God has. So wherever it is that you've set your target on, be reminded that it's not your, it's not your mission. When, when Jesus says, Look, don't be afraid, I'm with you. And then he reminds Paul that people won't attack you, but these are my people. You, you, have, you think you have a concern for a family member or an unbelieving spouse or, or a good friend that you, you want. God cares for them more than you do. But if you think about that, it's not your, it's not your mission. God gives the provision. God gives the fruit. You can't, you can't contort it. All you can do is be faithful about the task. You're not called to perfection. You're called to faithfulness which is the segue, I think, for next week. God promises for us that he will give what we, what we must or what we're called to leave in this life to follow him. When, that, when the rich young man is called to leave all of his wealth and to, to, to abandon self, to abandon your identity or your, your means of trust, to trust in Jesus alone, you're, you're leaving everything. So when Peter says, See, we've left everything to follow you. That's not a, some people leave some things to follow Jesus. It's you leave everything to follow Jesus. And you you must leave those things aside. So the promise is not, but it's okay, I'll be with you in spirit, and that will fulfill every need that you have. The promise is that he gives you the people that you're leaving. Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house, brothers, sisters, neither father nor mother, children or lands, for my sake and for the gospel. So why would you do that? For the sake of, of, of God. To, to, to continue to pound the work, that's where Paul finds himself. He's amidst a foreign people all alone, and God provides a people for him, which is what he's done for you. So whatever it is that you're called to leave, God returns. He says, not just now, yes now, but also in the age to come. Those are, that's the eternal friendship that you belong to, the eternal communion of believers. But he also says, you'll get all these things with what? Persecutions. You get these things with persecutions. You get them by enduring the trials that bring them about and make them valuable. Nobody needs a a good friend for the times that are are good. Those are just, um, you know, the the prodigal son had a lot of friends when he had money, okay? But when things got bad, like, he didn't have any friends, and those aren't friends. You need the people that are with you when the times are bad. And those those are the tribulations that you need, the children and, and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. You see it. So companionship is important to us. And it's provided for us, but it's, it's done in God's power and his presence and his timing and his provision. So I hope this has been um, an encouraging word for you this morning, but also one that we can maybe like self-examine and say, like, I, I, I need to invest more in either this group of community or I need to pull back from some of the investment on in my life with, with people that are not, they're not pushing me on towards maturity. They're not encouraging me to mature in christ and so um again don't hear me say that we should not have an influence in the world that's that's totally wrong that's um, paul himself says don't hear me say don't associate with the world because otherwise you wouldn't be able to be lights in the world y- yeah you need to be a light in the world but you you don't fellowship with the darkness so as to mute your light right you're still a light among darkness and so um i i trust the spirit to make that clear to you let me pray